over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, sitting here with Michael Easley himself. Dad, you are an expository teacher. You're a verse-by-verse guy. This series is not a verse-by-verse series. You are going to hit all 66 books of the Bible in 66 episodes. Why? Dr. Howard Hendricks, who continues to mentor me, even though he's with the Lord, he challenged us to take on a new challenging project, subject, whatever, every year. Okay. And it, from your devotional life, from your personal life, uh, you know, subscribe to journals you don't normally read, pick up a new hobby, do something different. And so over the years uh, in teaching the Bible, um, you know, verse by verse is my love. It's uh, what, what I enjoy doing. It's, I, I think, what's lacking. But after doing it for almost 40 years, uh, one of the things that has struck me is people don't know the big picture anymore. Yeah. Or if they did, you know, we haven't done a good job reinforcing it. So what we're doing in this series, there's still exposition involved, but not what I've been doing. Frankly, it's been challenging as, as, as a student to go to my office on a weekly basis and go, okay, how do I cover the book of Genesis in 45 minutes? Yeah. How do I cover Psalms in 45 minutes? So um, it's, been a, it's been a great study once I've figured out an approach, so to speak. There are lots of resources, and in the show notes and going forward, we'll have, for example, Dr. Tom Constable's notes, links to that, other books that I that do a great job of what I call synthesis. But uh, to land the plane uh, succinctly, I want you to walk away from each of these 66 messages going, oh, I've got an understanding of the big picture of the story of Exodus, of Genesis, of Leviticus, of Numbers. In fact, it was fun teaching through Numbers. I had people come up to me and go, you know, I've never even read Numbers Mm -hmm. before. I just kind of skipped over it. And so that's been reinforcing going, okay, if I was to teach a 48-week, series on numbers i'd kill people uh but to do an overview they go oh i can see why this is a valuable Uh study yeah excited about it it's been stretching for me uh to do this because it is out of the norm it's doing something differently but in god's kindness i hope he'll use it so people will get a picture of the big book cover to cover understanding a little bit more about what this large intimidating book might be because we can't teach 66 books verse by verse in a lifetime. Right. No, no human can do that. Right. So we're only going to get, you know, portions of exposition. This is still expository in that we're explaining the text. Uh-huh. But, of course, it's not verse by verse like we would normally do. Well, with that, let's head into our very first episode in Genesis. We're going to start something new today, and uh, it's an ambitious project. I've never done it before. Uh, I want to go through the Bible cover to cover. And I was, um, uh, you're laughing. I'm being serious. Uh, 
but um, I asked a few people, uh, how do you title a series that's going to do a survey of the whole Bible? And Jay Conner gave me all kinds of great ideas. See, I'm not creative like people like Jay, but he, he gave me several, and I'm just going to call it the big book cover to cover. Now, let's start with Genesis, obviously. The title of the book and the structure of the book are interesting. The, the word in Hebrew that begins the first in the beginning is the word breshit. Sorry to say that, but that's the word, breshit. Now, we don't call this breshit. We call it Genesis. And there are a couple of reasons for that, and it's a little bit of a complicated story. Um, don't miss when you read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. God is the subject of Genesis chapter 1. He's the subject of the first verse of the first book of your Bible. 35 times he's mentioned in 31 verses. So it's sort of like McFly, don't miss this. It's pretty obvious. God is the subject, the first sentence, the first verse of our Bible, the way we count it. Now, our English word Genesis is a complicated story. Have you heard of the Septuagint? Uh, some of you read commentaries and you'll see an abbreviation of LXX. That's an abbreviation for the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Bible, including the Old Testament. Arguably one of the older translations. The Greeks, when they translated Beshrit and other words, they had to make choices because there weren't words that translated. We've talked about transliteration versus translation, right? This is a reminder. Baptism has no English equivalent. Baptizo in Greek is transliterated baptism in English. Letter for letter, it sounds like. Gamal in Hebrew is glossed into English camel. Because we don't have a word for a camel in English. So we just, we hijack the word. Make sense? A translation would be a word like mathetes, which would be disciple. Or didaskalane, which would be teaching. That's a translation. Transliteration, we're making up a word, so to speak, for the English ear, the Greek ear, whatever. All that to say, there's a word in, in the Old Testament, we're going to look at it. It's called toledote. The repetition of this word toledote is a fabric and structure of the book of Genesis. This word was rendered by the Greeks in the Septuagint, genesos, genesos. They made up a word. So that word becomes beginning for you and me. Now, most of you could care less about that. Some of you may find it interesting, but the, 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 the words that title your books aren't often right out of the book, and this is the prime example of where the Greek language took over, because you wouldn't really want to call this Beisherit. Let's turn, turn to Beisherit chapter 12. This doesn't have, you know, Genesis works a little better, right? We're accustomed to it. Well, the Toledot occurs technically 11, arguably 12 times in your Old Testament. And the Toledot is either rendered account or generation, depending on if you use a New American Standard or an ESV or whatever Bible you like to read from. So the word is the same in Hebrew. Again, English translators render words differently for the English ear. That makes sense? How a word is used. They're not changing the translation. They're just giving it to us in a way that our appetite can understand, our ear can hear to learn. So these are the... 12, technically 11, Toledotes. So this is the account. This is the Toledote of the heavens and the earth. This is the Toledote of Adam. This is the Toledote of Noah, and so forth and so on. Each of those forms a framework like a literary flag. If you read a novel, uh, you might have chapters. If you read a chapter book or a textbook, you're going to have chapters. They're going to have 
pretty sophisticated titles and maybe a purpose statement, maybe some clauses, maybe an outline of the chapter, right? So a toledote is the way that uh, the author of Genesis sewed this book together under the superintention of God's spirit to write in such a way to give it a framework to hang on. So those are the toledotes. Now, it's a formula. It's a starting point. The way to think about this phrase, the narrative is going to tell you, let me tell you the account of such and such. Now I'll tell you the story and the, the, the backstory of it and explain it to you, and I'll close it, and I'll tell you the next one. That's all it is. It's a complicated device, but for simplicity's sake, it's just an explanation. This is the account. This is what happened. Now let me tell you about it. Now, to transition, it's, it's real simple, but it's important to watch the structure and the formula as a starting point. Uh, Dr. Alan Ross was a Hebrew professor of mine. I had him for, um, we had three years of required Hebrew, and then I took electives. I was a masochist. I took electives under him. He was one of the hardest professors I ever had in my life and one of the best professors. You ever had profs like that? They're just so stinking hard, but they're great. And they're brutal on you as students. I could tell you stories about Dr. Ross for a long time that you would maybe laugh. Uh, but he was a very difficult professor, and I love him dearly. He's written uh, on the Pentateuch, uh, multi-volume sets on Psalms, and his goal was always uh, teach a 12th grade educated mind. So here's a true scholar whose goal was you need to write for a 12th grade educated person. You're not writing for other scholars. You're writing for people in the baseline of America who can learn and grow and, and, and understand what you're teaching them. Don't use erudite, altruistic, over-the-top language unless you're going to define it. That would be his point. He writes about this Toledope. The organization is complex, well-ordered, and significant. Each section or Toledope narrows the storyline. So, for example, we move from Noah to the more narrow Shem. This has a whole lot of other implications. And some of you who are BSFers and Precept and CBS students, and other, when you're studying the Bible, you'll appreciate this. Because the dominant role of this Toledope becomes the blessing and cursing motif. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll bring the curses of Egypt upon you. If you, if, if you do these things, you can be promised blessing and cursing. What, what's the first promise in Scripture? Everything in the garden's yours. Don't eat one tree. If you do that, what happens? You're going to die. The Hebrew says, dying you will die. And the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and dying you will die. You will begin death. That's an if-then. That's a blessing and curse motif. That pattern is throughout the whole Bible. So these Toledotes begin the framework that's going to go through all of Scripture. If you obey the law, I'm going to protect you. If you don't, you're going to be in trouble. And Israel, just like you and me, uh, can't follow the simplest parts of the law. And so this Toledote will go back and forth as a dominant role. A simpler way of looking at the Bible, and some of you may have come across this on your own study or whatever, is the four events and the four people. You've got the creation, fall, flood, uh, and nations. So the four events. And then you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, notice they're unequal parts. The first 11 chapters are much shorter than chapter 11 through chapter 50, which also tells us something about the way God orders uh, and organizes his word. Um, each of the four events is critical back to that if-then or blessing and cursive motif because what happens in the creation? Well, you violated the command. The result, the fall. 
You didn't do what I told you after the fall. You, you aggregated and came together and you became wicked. So I'm going to bring a flood. Well, you didn't do what I told you again, and you tried to build this table, this uh, ziggurat to God. Everyone was uh, like one mind, remember? They're going to build a tower to God, which is one of the greatest pieces of comedy in Genesis. It says, let us go down there and see what they're doing. I love that. It's, uh, they think they're building this big little tower. Let's go down there. I came to see it from heaven. We better go down there and see it. Let's go down and see what they think they're doing. And then we get what? What's the word we use with the tower of Babylon, Babel is a Hebrew word that has no translation that we brought transliterated into English and every one of us knows what Babel means. A babbling child, a babbling brook, a babbling spouse, whatever. You know, we babble. Are you just babbling or what? We all know what that means without having to look it up. The idea of Babel was so influential that it dispersed the nations. Now, I can't prove this, but my own hack theology in Bible study is that when the ziggurat was destroyed uh, by God, metaphorically destroyed, and the people are dispersed, we not only have language, but we have race. And the ethnicities begin with that language alignment. Now, we're all in the DNA and one, two, three, and swab, and some of you done that. God bless you. They know all about you when you do that, by the way. They're aggregating the information. I'm going to scare you because it's too late if you sent it in. You're toast. They know all about you. Between Google and your swab, you're done. Uh, anyway, uh, we, we, we want to find where we came from. What is it in man that wants to know where he came from? I can tell you where he came from. He came from Babel. You came from a dispersion of people that were trying to become one, not what God told them to do. So the table of nations, as it's often called, chapter 10, which is a boring list of names, is very important in biblical salvation history because this is how God then is continuing to redeem his broken, sinful people. You're not doing what I tell you to do. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to confuse your language to get you out of here. If you fast forward into the book of Acts, they're hanging around Jerusalem. Jesus told them to wait into Jerusalem until they received power from the Holy Spirit, and then they were to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the world. Did they do it? No, they're camped out in Jerusalem. You'd think by now with Jesus, they're going to obey. So what does Jesus do? He persecutes his own church. And the word is diaspereo. They scattered them like seed. And so the, the persecution in Jerusalem drives out the Christians to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all along we have guys like Peter, the new church, and we have Paul, who's the, you know, sort of the antithesis brought in. So this plan is nothing new. This was part of his intent and desire from the very beginning. The Table of Nations, albeit a boring chapter to read the names, if you understand the Toledotes, you understand what he's doing from a structural point of view, it's a brilliant piece of literature. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph then become the patriarchs, as we often refer to them, the fathers of faith. Uh, Abraham, the friend of God, called from Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, Abraham, in Genesis 12, we look at time uh, permitting, is perhaps, I always hate when someone says this is the most important verse in the book, because, well, it's God's word. But what I would say is it's, it's a very important part of the Bible story. The Abrahamic covenant is critical in understanding God's salvation plan after the fall of man. Now, depending on old earth and young earth and time spans, and some of you probably believe in an old earth because of your viewpoint, some believe in a young earth, 
Uh, some people believe the earth could be as young as four to 6,000 years old. Some believe in billions and billions and billions and billions of years. And there's all sorts of ways to discuss this. It's a fun discussion. People get pretty upset about it, but it's a fun discussion. Um, I tend to be a young earth proponent because I'm going to let the word of God govern my theology, not observable science. Observable science brings us incredibly valuable things, but... Um, my, my answer to this, and I've gotten this into this discussion slash argument many times over my life, that I'm an idiot to think in a young earth because, well, we know light is so many billion light years away. So that means it has to be billions of years old. Sure, from an observable standpoint. Then I ask the question, did Jesus give the man in John 9 a new set of eyes? Congenitally blind. Did he turn water into wine? Did he calm a storm? Did he cast out a fever? Any of Jesus Christ's miracles broke the laws of physics and biology. If Jesus can break the laws of physics and biology and create a new set of eyes, I think he can handle the appearance of age. I think he can handle the differential. We can't comprehend. Sure, I can measure that. That light's billions of years away. Yes, I'm not disagreeing with that. Could it be that God, as the sovereign creator, sustainer of the universe, created it with the appearance of billions of years of age? Those of you who are scientists and engineers think I'm an idiot. That's okay. A lot of people think I'm an idiot. I'm happy to live with that. The book of Genesis is not written to prove a young or old earth theory. The book of Genesis is written to show that God had a love for man, that man fell, and God is in the business of redeeming man, and man can't do it on his own accord. Alan Ross writes, most of the books of the Bible draw on the contents of Genesis in one way or another. Apart from this, however, Genesis subject matter and the unembellished way in which it is written have captivated the mind of biblical scholars for ages. As with biblical truth in general, the book has been a stumbling block for many who have approached it with preconceived notions or anti-supernatural biases. But for those who recognize it as the word of God, whom they seek to serve, Genesis is the source of comfort and edification. And by them, the questions and difficulty of the book are approached differently. We're not looking at the at Genesis to be the record of creation and seven-day literal, although I believe in a six-day literal creation. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is God's relationship with man, that man fell, and God is in the business of redeeming man because man can't do this on his own accord. Um, a little book, um, Derek Kidner, who's with the Lord now, he writes these little books, and uh, these little books are left alone for 50 years. I couldn't do what he did in this book on the book of Genesis. If you're a, a Bible student, I know BSF doesn't let you use commentaries, do they? At least you're not supposed to, right? Sort of. Precept you can, right? Can you Bible study? You can. Is that right? Can you use commentaries? So if, if, you're, if you're one of those you know, weird people like me, anything Derek Kidner writes, you need to own. He's only written about seven books. They're all about this size. His two-volume books on the Psalms are gold. In fact, I used to have two hard copy sets, one at my home and one at my office. Now I have it on computer, but I still like the books. And Kidner was a British Cambridge uh, scholar. And what he says in three sentences, I go, how did he distill all that in three sentences? Let me just read you 
parts of what he says about the book of Genesis. No work that is known to us from the ancient Near East is remotely comparable in scope to say nothing less of measurable qualities with the book of Genesis. If you look at all the ancient Near Eastern literature, which would call Babylonian text, Gilgamesh stories, all these stories, he said, you put all that together, nothing comes close to Genesis. We're talking 1,200 verses at most of some of these Babylonian epics. You got 50 chapters in the book of Genesis alone. So he's saying nothing comes close in comparison to this little book that we call Genesis. The book falls into two unequal parts. The second begins with the emergence of Abram at the junction of chapters 11 and 12. Chapters 1 to 11 describe the two opposite progressions. First, God's orderly creation to its climax in man as a responsible and blessed being. Then the disintegrating work of sin to the great anticlimax of the corrupt world of the flood and the second folly in Babel. Abram, landless and childless, is made to learn that the great promise uh, is the lodestar of his life. Isn't that great English? The great lodestar of his life. The promise is what it's all about. No matter my experience, do I trust the promise of God that I'm going to be a father of nations? Do I believe him? Must be fully, divinely, and miraculously done or not at all. If God doesn't do this, it ain't going to happen. And Ishmael is the sidebar. You try to do it in the flesh, this is what happens. You create a people group of enemies. Do it my way, Abram. Trust me, Abram. And he dies with one legitimate son. That's why he's called a friend of God. So these stories are comprehensive in nature. One more thing. Genesis, in fact, in various ways, almost nearer to the New Testament than the Old. Some of its topics are barely heard again until the implications emerge in the Gospels. For example, institution of marriage, the fall of man, the jealousy of Cain, the judgment of the flood, the imputed righteousness of the believer. Time out. If you haven't studied this in your Christian life, when you study Romans and you study the doctrine of imputation, this is a big doctrine. It goes back to Genesis with Abram. Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That reckoned is a banking account. You believed and I put a million dollars in your bank account because I said I would. That's reckoned. Paul will spend chapters talking about imputed righteousness. The reformers will literally probably wrote millions of pages on imputation. The imputation of sin versus the imputation of righteousness. And Kinder says, after Genesis, you don't hear about it till the New Testament, which is a pretty remarkable observation that I had never seen before, frankly. That's why I love this guy. Um, he continues, the son rival of the promise of flesh, the profanity of Esau, the pilgrim status of God's people are all predominantly New Testament themes. So just in these few short chapters, we get more New Testament than we do in Exodus all the way to Malachi. That's his point. So it's a remarkable text in that way. Well, let's talk about the author who wrote it. And of course, if you, again, if you've been around churches that teach scripture, this is a big debated issue. Uh, there's all kinds of theories about who wrote the book of Genesis. Um, the most common one is that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Now, you know what that is. That's Genesis. Say it with me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books of your Old Testament, Pentateuch. One more time. Genesis, 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch. Also known as the Torah. This was the law. So in, in this Pentateuch, in these first five books, is really the corpus of literature that the Jew looked at as the Bible. Which to me is a remarkable thought. They didn't have the rest of the Bible. You and I are endeared to so much of this book, but if all you had was the Pentateuch, could you live the Christian life? That becomes sort of an interesting question to banter around. Now, I believe Moses wrote it. Now, there are all kinds of theories that don't agree with that. There's all kinds of theories that, uh, that great scholars came up with trying to differentiate multiple authors. I won't bore you with. Let's look at what the Old Testament says about Moses, a few verses, and what the New Testament says about who may have written these books. Exodus 17, 14. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book. Pretty hard to miss, right? Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. Numbers 32, uh, 33, verse 2. Moses recorded their starting places according to the journey, their journeys by the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting places. You see in the, the simple pattern. Now Joshua 1.7 is inferential, meaning it doesn't say he wrote it, but listen to what Joshua 1.7 reads. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law of Moses, my servants commanded you. Somewhere that had to be beyond oral tradition. It was written down, it was handed over to him is the argument. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all you do and wherever you turn. And the last one, and again, there's many more. This is just a sampling, and I try to go across time spans with these. Look at Ezra 6, verse 18. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites, in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. What's the first thing we know of that was written that Moses was involved with? Not a trick question, was it? It's not Jesus, it's something else. The Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue. He goes up to Sinai. How long is he up there? 40 days and nights. Do you think all they did was chisel out Ten Commandments? My theory is there was a lot of writing going on besides the Decalogue. Now, the Decalogue, just as a sidebar, there's two tablets, right? And when you're in Sunday school, they were, they were curved on the top where they got this idea, I don't know, you know, some were hinged like a book, and they had commandments one to five and six to ten, right? Okay, can't prove it bull dogmatically, but more than likely there were copies, one to ten, one to ten. It's the first hard copy, no pun intended. Why did they have a copy? What was the one tab? Where did one of those tablets reside? In the Ark of the Covenant. If you got one to five on one tablet and six to ten on another, you go around with five commandments? No. So one was put in the Ark of the Covenant, which is a whole other story, a fabulous story of why God wanted his law inside the Ark of the Covenant where the mercy seat took place where intercession could happen to God is because his word was there, his law was there, his promises were there. So the copy, if you would, was probably used by the priest 
They probably brought it out and put it on display when they had different ceremonies and festivals because this was carved by God's finger, which I don't think was Steven Spielberg in my sanctified imagination is Jesus with Moses and they're carving it out. Whether they used an iron tool or not, the Semitics can debate. But I think Jesus is up there with him and they're carving these by hand, by the finger of God. So that was the first hard copy written document. Much, much more was written, and that becomes your Torah. That becomes your Pentateuch over time. Now, let's look at what the New Testament says about some of these things. Mark chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus speaking. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? He wrote something in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him. What book does the burning bush occur in? Exodus, right? First few chapters, Moses is minding his own Moses business and the bush is on fire and he goes over and talks to the burning bush. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Acts 7.22, which I find to be a fascinating inference. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and was a man of power in words and deed. Interesting that by the New Testament establishment in Acts 7, this is, this is again on the heels of the stoning of Stephen, the persecution of the church being spread out of Jerusalem. This is what they talk about with Moses. Moses is revered by Jews today. He's the one guy that spoke to God like a man face to face. He's the one guy who goes up to Sinai and comes back with the, with the glow and it freaks people out and he wears a veil because it's just too creepy. And then, it, the, then the, the, the image diminishes, which is an interesting story too, how the glory faded, so to speak, between God and Moses. So Moses is revered because God gave Moses the law. Everyone else, the Aaronic priesthood, the prophets, none of them equaled Moses. Because Moses was the one who got God's law and brought it to man after the fall of man. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians 9, 9, it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not. Anyway, the point being, the New Testament authors understood he was educated in an Egyptian system. He was powerful in word and deed. He's a bright individual. And so we have Old Testament and New Testament convergence just to say, I would argue, that the, New, the Old Testament is written, the Pentateuch, by Moses. Can't prove it dogmatically, but I find it interesting that as chosen by God to lead God's people to be the one he gave the law to, it would only make sense that he wrote it. This idea that man crawled out of the Cro-Bagnon soup and somehow became a living being and learned how to you know, hunt and fish and Make, make fire, who, you know, Geico commercials, whatever you want to talk about. I mean, this idea is just fan, it's just fiction. Man is made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. They're image bearers. They didn't crawl out of the soup. And so this image bearer had a unique relationship, and this is part of what Moses writes. Also, just as a sidebar, I would argue that the ancients, including Adam and Eve to begin with, were the two most intelligent people on the planet. Again, we have this picture of them you know, naked by a stream eating you know, peeled grapes or something, you know, some kind of nonsense in the Garden of Eden. These people were brilliant because they're made in God's image and they've not yet fallen. You put Mozart and Einstein and anybody you want together, and I think aggregate uh, Adam and Eve were smarter. 
And I would argue that all the way down through Noah, they were brilliant. Again, you may disagree with my timelines and the Bible's timelines. How long did Adam live? Do you remember? 930 years. You're going to learn a thing or two if you live 930 years. And if you hold to a canopy theory, which I do, the canopy collapsed and, and man started to age after the fall, and they started living to be 100, 120 years of age, and then it goes downhill from there. Um, but prior to that, these, these men and women were brilliant. They weren't stupid, cave-dwelling, scratch-on-the-wall people. They were brilliant men and women. And Moses would be in that league. Um, Many view Genesis uh, in certain ways. They dis- disbelieve the unbelievable stories. They, don't, they call it myth. The question really becomes down to you. How do you read and understand the Bible? How do you read and understand the Scripture? That's where this matters. Well, let me give you three lessons and, and send you almost on your way. Number one, God's law to man. The, the story of Genesis is really God's law to man. He, he failed in the very beginning and so God gives him, uh, there's no plan B, as a friend of mine off said, which I love. There's no plan B. This was always plan A. He knew Adam and Eve would fall. And so this is the law to man. Genesis is the beginning of that Pentateuch. It's the beginning of the Torah from 2,000 years of history across the story. And you've got at least 300 years from the character of Joseph uh, back to Abraham. Genesis 50 verse 24 Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, last chapter of Genesis, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Remarkable comment from Joseph. Almost 300 years after the promise, he still believed God's word. God is going to do this. We're not going to stay in Egypt. Remember he says, take my bones back to the land. Don't bury me in Egypt. Don't embalm me and put me in a mummy situation. Take me back. It will connect with Exodus 2, 24. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why Genesis 12 is so pivotal in the story of the Bible. So number one, this is God's law to man. Number two, this is God's choice of Israel. Genesis confirms that historically and theologically he chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph to be the lineage. He chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. Um, I often joked with Cindy, if I could be born uh, by another nationality, I would love to have grown up in a, a Jewish home that was Orthodox Jewish and taught all the Hebrew that I so struggle with today would be my first language and I could understand the Old Testament the way it was written in the context. Because what the Jew got from Yahweh Elohim is so incredible. But it was always to be a blessing to the world. It wasn't to reside just in Judaism and these orthodox and reform and different sects of Judaism that have splintered, just like the Western church is all splintered. But the idea was... You're going to be a blessing to the world. By the way, Genesis 12 are a set of imperative commands. You will be. You will go. You will bless the nations. You will bless the world. From, it's almost like he didn't have a choice in the matter, which kind of aligns with the doctrine of election and predestination. I'm going to choose you, Abraham. Like it or not, you're going to go do this thing, and you're going to be a blessing. In fact, in your, most of your Bibles that are ESV and NASB will say, be a blessing in the margin. You're going to be this, whether you like it or not. It's kind of interesting. Third, the promise to Israel. 
Throughout Israel's checkered history, uh, God's promises don't waver. Israel failed innumerable times. They're not going to be successful in Egypt. Although they prospered numerically, that was not to be their home. The future was yet acquired. Even for the book of Judges, they're going to wrestle and struggle, not yet getting the land God promised to them because of their disobedience. So that's the high level. Let's personalize it. God's law or God's word to you. God's choice of you and God's promises to you. If the story of Abraham is true, the story of your life is true. If the story of Moses is true, the story of your story is true. His law, his word's been given to you and me. He chose you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And he's made promises that are irrevocable. So the book of Genesis is just that. It's the beginning story of God's redemptive plan when man fails again and again and again and again. And it ought to encourage us because we all fail again and again and again and again and again. We sin over and over and over and over and over and over and over. His word's true. His choice of you is true. And his promise to you is true. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.